us be still again. Let's just pray. Father, give us insight into what's going on in this passage this evening. There's much in this passage for us to learn. So Spirit of God, be our teacher. Enable us to listen and to learn and to put each lesson into practice day by day. We ask this, Lord God, for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm sure looking back at many services that you've attended here or maybe somewhere else, they were so special. You've been blessed by God, service after service, but maybe you can remember attending services of worship where the sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit was so real as the scriptures were read and as you were led in prayer. And as the word of God was preached, it was just as if you could reach out and touch the Lord Jesus. And when the service had ended, you couldn't wait to rush home to tell your wife or your husband or your parents who were not able to be present at that service just what had happened. How did you, a spiritual high. It was so real. It was so spirit-filled. It was so Christ-exalting. And yet how disappointed you were that your loved one just couldn't understand what you were saying. They couldn't understand what was happening because they were not there. Well, that's exactly what it was like for David. Returning home after worshiping the Lord, his wife couldn't understand why David had behaved in such a way as he worshiped the Lord. She had not been present at the worship. We'll talk about this again at the end. Second Samuel 6 is quite a chapter. I find in preparation there is so much that can be commented on, so many spiritual lessons to learn. Tonight, we're thinking just of three things. First, the Ark of the Covenant. Second, the action of Uzzah. And thirdly, the attitude of David. And as Neil explained to us as he looked at chapter 5, David, after decades, is finally king of all Israel. He has made Jerusalem the political center of his kingdom. But something was missing. He wanted something more. There was something else that he needed to do. He needed, he wanted to establish Jerusalem as the center for Israel's worship. He had it in his heart to bring up the Ark of the Covenant, that manifestation of the presence of God to this new capital city of Jerusalem. Because he rightly understood that the worship of God must be a priority among his people. He understood that God could no longer be kept on the outskirts of Jerusalem, but had to be right in the midst of his people. And what we read off in this chapter is an event which teaches, among other things, a lesson about reverence. And perhaps it's 
one of the most striking, one of the most solemn lessons on this subject you'll find in the whole of Scripture. But first of all, let's comment about the Ark of the Covenant. You find the command to make it in Exodus 25. It was to be made of acacia wood. It was to be shaped like a, a chest overlaid with gold. It had rings on the corners with staves to be placed through those rings. Over it was the mercy seat made of pure gold on which the two cherubim, all shaped out of one piece of gold. And it was placed in the center of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the wilderness. As I've said, it had three parts. There was the chest. It was designed to contain the, the written tablets of stone which Moses received at Mount Sinai. There was the mercy seat or the throne on which on the great day of atonement the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice. And then there was the cherubim, the angels, emblems of God's power. And this ark was a symbolic throne for Jehovah. To the Jews it symbolized the presence of God in their midst. And now, for almost 70 years, the ark had been missing from its rightful place. To begin with, it had been captured by the Philistines. And it's amazing, a year ago, Christoph had given me 1 Samuel chapter 4 to preach on, which was all about the Ark of the Covenant, when it was captured by the Philistines back then. And we're told in 1 Samuel that after a short period of time, the Philistines couldn't wait to send the Ark back to the Israelites. And for decades, it had languished, neglected, at the border of Judah, in the household of Abinadab. And since its return from the Philistines, no one had been interested in its whereabouts. No doubt Abinadab's family had become familiar with this sacred vessel that had laid unattended, uncared for in his house. And, and sad to say, maybe familiarity had led to irreverence. But David as king had captured this city. It was now called Jerusalem. And so his first thought after he became king over all Israel was the enthronement in Jerusalem of the long forgotten ark. And so before long, David made plans to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It's possible that David wanted to protect the ark. It was near the border adjacent to the Philistines. He wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem for its safety and protection, which maybe explains the large amount of soldiers that paraded behind it. 30,000 were told there. But the main reason that he wanted the ark in Jerusalem was because he was eager to make Jerusalem the center of the nation's life. And one thing that David wanted above all else was to know constantly the presence of God with him. He couldn't possibly rule in authority and with power without the Lord's guidance. It would be essential for every battle, essential every judgment, for every action. And so he determined to restore the ark to the place where it should be, right in the very heart of his kingdom. He wanted to have a place of honor. And so 30,000 of the best soldiers were the escort of the ark into the city. Bands of musicians led the way, announcing the ark's approach. First Chronicles 13 tells us the whole nation lined the route. 
and that a great feast was planned to celebrate the event. Everything that could be done to make this day, to make this event a glorious day, was put in place. But David's plans for the ark were ruined by the action of Uzzah. We're going to think about an event that seems at face value to be very unfair, but, but actually it's not unfair. In fact, as we unpack the truth of this section, we see from God's word that it's very fair. We read of the death here of one of the priests of Levi because he was too casual concerning God and what God had said in his word. That day of celebration was supposed to be a, a festive day, a day of great joy and, and happiness, and it becomes a day of mourning. It becomes a day of great fear. On the ark's journey to Jerusalem, in the midst of all the pomp and all the ceremony, a terrible calamity occurred. For the first two miles, all went well. But as the procession reached Nacon's threshing floor, the ark traveled over a piece of rough road, the oxen shook the new cart, and while the ark was being drawn, Uzzah, the youngest of the two sons of Abinadab, who perhaps had become too familiar with this sacred emblem, put his hands on the ark to steady it, to stop it from falling off the cart. And in the solemn language of the scriptures, chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now I have no doubt that Uzzah's intention was good. He was zealous that the ark of God would not be defiled by falling to the ground. He was trying to do a good thing. He was trying to keep the ark from being damaged. His intentions were good. But here's the point. Good intentions never excuse disobedience. Good intentions never replace active obedience. The ark of the covenant was not to be touched. And yet when you turn back to 1 Samuel, to those chapters I mentioned a few moments ago, the Philistines then had captured the ark and they touched it multiple times and no one died. So what was the difference now with Uzzah? Well, this was the difference. The closer you get to God, the higher the standards become. And judgment always begins in the house of God. And I'll explain what I mean in a moment. But doesn't it seem a terrible punishment to befall a man for so small an offense? It almost seems unfair. I mean, why did it happen? Why did he die? Well, as you would expect, the, the scripture gives us the answer. First in Numbers 4, verse 15, listen to what it says. After Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp was ready to move, the Kohathites are to come to do the carrying of the ark. But they must not touch the holy things 
or they will die. The Kothathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. So right there, it tells us that you're not allowed to touch the ark. And secondly, Exodus 25, verse 14, you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. There were rings and there were poles, staves, and they were specifically to carry it. Not only were they to carry it, but only specific men could carry it. Levites, who were from the clan of Kohath, the sons of Kohath. So a, a specific Levite was to carry it. And it was not to be put on a cart. So as the ark is brought to Jerusalem on this occasion, they were, they were either ignorant of what the Lord had said in his word, or they blatantly ignored it. They did not do what the Lord told them to do. In chapter 5, we read that every time the Philistines challenged David and Israel, David's first action was to pray to the Lord. It was to inquire of the Lord as to what action he should take. And yet, in the record of this event, that's the one thing that David doesn't do. He inquires, we're told in Chronicles, he inquires from the other leaders as to what action he should take, but he doesn't inquire of the Lord. And my friend, there's no substitute for talking to God about important decisions in our lives. God's blessing was not sought here, so how could it be expected? And now, of course, the lesson is the same for us as individuals and as a church. If prayer doesn't proceed, if prayer doesn't accompany our actions, what are our actions likely to amount to? If in all we do, God is not acknowledged. If in all we do, God is not inquired of. We shouldn't be surprised if it leads to failure. You know, it's not true that the means and methods we use in God's service do not matter as long as the aim, as long as the end is right. And how wrong such thinking is. Their intentions were good, but they went about it the wrong way. They used the same method the Philistines used, a new cart. They went with the world's way, as it were, rather than God's way. The Lord had given them very definite instructions as to the order which must be followed when the ark was to be moved. And placing the ark on a new cart was a human invention, contrary to the instructions of the Lord. Oh yes, David's desire was holy. His motive was pure. But he went about it the wrong way. And the consequences were dire. And in our churches, there are many who are anxious to see the pews occupied, to see every seat filled. They're so anxious to see the treasurer smile that they will use any means, even the ways of the world, to achieve their aims. And so often, churches use the ways of the world, and yet the world's ways do not have the blessing of God. And so often the argument is, well, 
just as long as our means, just as long as our methods seem right and are in use in other churches, and so long as they're able to achieve the right results, surely that's all that matters. Nothing else matters. It's just the results. But my friends, such thinking is wrong because the question that needs always to be asked is this one. Is there any scriptural warrant for doing this or that? Using this method or this other method? The Kohathites, they were the only ones chosen by God to carry the ark, not on a cart, but on the staves resting on their shoulders. But David adopts some kind of new style of doing an old thing. When sometimes the best thing to do is to keep doing the old thing the old way. Now, I'm not here to start a row tonight. Listen to me carefully, what I'm going to say. Let me underline, there's nothing wrong with change. But there's a whole lot wrong with change that God doesn't authorize. And we often think we know better than God or we can improve upon his ways. And, and so we're tempted to try to carry the gospel on the world's new cart, as it were. And in this world, there will always be the temptation to carry our faith on a new cart like the Philistines rather than on the shoulders of the faithful as prescribed in God's word. And the argument is, but that was a long time ago. Surely it's not for today. And such an argument is illogical and it carries no weight because if God said it, it's true. And if God orders it, we're under obligation to do it. And if God promised it, then we have every reason to expect it, no matter what century he said it in. God has prescribed that we're to keep the preaching of the word of God central in ministry, even if we're tempted to use all kinds of more appealing methods. Preaching is God's way. And even though this is God's way, you still would hear the call to cut the sermon back or to give the people more of what they want or don't be confrontational whenever you're presenting the gospel. God's ways are okay in the day. But in these modern times, you've got to adapt to the multimedia culture. You can't just preach the Bible in this day and age. I wonder how many people are really reaching out their hand to steady the church. Treating God's holy bride in ways other than what God has prescribed. My friends, all things have got to be done according to the pattern which God has furnished for us. For if we disregard his pattern, if we substitute another of our own, sooner or later, all the effort on the part of the church or of an individual believer will prove a failure. It'll just be like wood and hay and stubble. If we're not interested in serving God for his glory, and therefore serving according to his instruction, we shouldn't be surprised when things crash. We need to be careful to do the thing God ordains in the way God ordains it, in case when we get to heaven, we discover that we're doing, we've been doing God's work for our own glory. God doesn't tolerate us robbing him of his glory for very long. It's a dangerous thing 
when we hold on to a gospel that creates an unholy familiarity with God. It's dangerous when you think approaching God can be a common thing, can be a casual thing. Uzzah's death can be traced back to David not seeking God's guidance with regard to the ark and to Uzzah being too casual with the Lord, which is a dangerous thing to do even in our day. And here's the bottom line. The holiness of God is not a thing to be trifled with. Not then and not now. But whatever the answer to that question, why did Uzzah die? One thing is certain. That there are solemn lessons for you and I to learn. The first is this. Sometimes God makes a striking example of judgment for the purpose that others might fear. He did so with Nadab and Abihu. Remember that the sons of Aaron, they suffered judgment because they offered to God the wrong sacrifice. And because of what happened to them, others thought twice before offering the same to God. If you remember, God did exactly the same with Ananias and Sapphira, who were stealing from God by withholding from him what was rightly his. I mean, what a clear visual aid to others who would be tempted to do the same. The second lesson is that it was a public and solemn display of disobedience. Listen to 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Placing the ark on the cart was a flagrant breach. It should have been carried on the shoulders of the priests. It was an act of disobedience to have the sons of Abinadab carry the ark. To touch the ark was deliberate disobedience. And then thirdly, Uzzah's action was an act of thoughtless irreverence. At this moment in Israel's history, Israel had a diminished reverence for God. No one voiced any concern about the ark. Nobody was concerned that it was being handled properly or not, or why the Kohathites should be carrying it or not. It's particularly disturbing that not even the priests voiced any objection to it. You see, when reverence for God is not clearly taught, the people are prone to forget. Do you remember Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6? The, the seraphim were, were heavenly beings created with one purpose. They were announcing the glory of God. He is holy, holy, holy. They were always in God's presence, yet there was a complete absence of familiarity. They covered their faces as a sign of reverence and honor and respect. They covered their feet as a sign of unworthiness. David knew a lot of things about God, but he had forgotten that he was holy and that he's to be feared. My friend, God hasn't changed. It's the same God that we worship. True worship demands exalting God I, humbling ourselves low. So high reverent are you in God's presence, not, not just in church, but always, everywhere. And then finally, let's look at the attitude of David. 
Notice how at first, David was angry with God at Uzzah's death and then afraid of God. His first reaction is to abandon his plans to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And how sadly that day had ended. You can imagine the disappointed people going over the hills back to their homes again. And we're told the ark was placed for three months in the house of Obed-Edom, a Philistine. I mean, imagine a Philistine being entrusted with the so great an item. But we read that God blessed this Philistine's household. What a story this is. David's original plan was to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It's as if God said, hold on, David. On the way, there's a man whose house I want to stop by. And for the rest of his life, Obed-Edom is going to serve me because of the experience of me being in his home. And it's interesting just to read through First Chronicles. It's interesting to take note of the number of times that Obed-Edom is mentioned serving God as a porter as a keeper of the ark, as a, a member of the choir. Just being in the presence of God for those three months transformed Obed-Edom. He was truly blessed, and his response was to offer himself in service to God. Have you been experiencing God in a special way in recent days, in recent weeks? Has it led to you offering yourself in service to God? Are there gifts of service that you could offer to use in this place, in Hamilton Road, or, or in the world? And if you're not a believer yet, maybe you're just as Obed-Edom once was before God came in to dwell in his house. There's been little sense of God's presence maybe in your home up to this point in time. And now having heard tonight about Obed-Edom and what happened to him, could it be that God didn't just bring you to church tonight so that you could come to his house. Maybe he brought you to church tonight so he could come to yours. Seek his presence in your life. Seek a relationship with him. And so when David heard of this blessing, he again made plans to bring the ark to Jerusalem. But things were different this time. David's attitude was different this time. The ark was brought to Jerusalem God's way. You see, what had happened was that during those three months when the ark was with Obed-Edom, David studied the law. David found out how he was supposed to move the ark, not by the use of a new cart, but being carried by the staves, by the Kohathites. David and his people learned what God wanted them to learn, that God is holy, that God is to be taken seriously. David had learned his lesson. He had inquired of the Lord. And he tells his people to sanctify themselves before carrying the ark. And that the Kohathites were to carry the ark on their shoulders with the appointed staves as the word of the Lord had told them to do. And then with properly ordered singing and at the sound of the trumpets, they advanced in godly order. And on the ark's arrival, they sacrificed bullocks and rams. And David just rejoiced in the presence of his people. David was overjoyed that the ark was to be safely installed in the sanctuary in Jerusalem. And so happy was him, was he, that he, that he danced at the very head of the procession. He dances with full expression of how much he loves the Lord. 
full expression of worship and honor to the God of Israel. There now was a, a great joy in obedience. And he was leaping. He was dancing with joy. I mean, what a, a wonderful moment it was. In a sense, this was a, a revival of religion. And David felt it. When the day was over, he went back home and he was met by his wife. Everyone shared his joy, everyone that is, except his wife. The joy of the occasion was marred by the critical heart of his wife, Michal, Saul's daughter, who should have been there right in the heart of the celebration, worshiping the Lord. She looks out the window. She's not even participating. All the men of Israel returned home to bless their households, but not David. He was met by an unspiritual wife who, who sneered at him. She was irritated by David's devotion to God. She bitterly condemned his zeal for the Lord. And when she sees him dancing, she despises him in her heart. She ridicules him for being exuberant. In her estimation, David was not behaving in a kingly fashion. Her gripe was that David's boundless praise and joy made him look like a fool. Look at my husband, the king, who's acting like the court jester. Where is his concern for dignity? Where is the majesty? There's a right way to do things, and this isn't it, David. David had been worshipping with unfettered joy before the Lord and she criticized him for it. She greeted him with sarcasm and bitterness. What was the problem? We can only surmise, but maybe it's because she realized that God was blessing David more than he'd ever blessed her father Saul. I think it's worth noting that she's referred to in that passage as the daughter of Saul three times rather than the wife of David. Maybe she was completely unable to understand, to comprehend David's joy. To her, David's dancing was uncalled for. To David, it was an expression of his love. It was an expression of his worship towards God. Most likely, she didn't fear the God of Israel. And when people feel the reverence God, they come under his judgment. And there were consequences for Michal. We're told in the final verse that she had no children. The Lord closed her womb. Now, that doesn't mean that every time a woman can't have children, that that's judgment from the Lord. But at least in this case, it was. It was a severe judgment. Her son would have been David's firstborn, rightful successor to the throne. But as a result of her actions here, the house of David would have no descendants from the house of Saul. And surely if Michal had loved the Lord, she would have rejoiced with David at the arrival of the ark. And if she had loved David, surely should have overlooked his imperfections or not have been so hypocritical. hypercritical. I think she stands as a warning, does she not, to us? 
It's easy for us to be judgmental, to, to develop this heart of criticism, always looking down in judgment on the actions of others. There are always those who rejoice in God and in his work in the lives of others, but there are always all others who just continually criticize, they continually find fault. question is, which is most like you? If the latter, well then such people can be a terrible blemish on the life of the church. I'm almost finished. Did you notice how David handled the criticism? As far as he was concerned, what God thought of him was far more important than what Michal thought of him. We must always think of God's opinion of us more than man's. David states that he was celebrating before the Lord. As far as David was concerned, he had an audience of one. In his worship of God, he wasn't seeking the approval of his people or of his wife. David was focused only on the audience of God. I think most people care about the opinions of others. It controls what they say. It controls what they do. We are to have a higher focus to live before our God alone. Are you more concerned about what others think of you than what God thinks? Are you starving for the praises of men and women or are you really more concerned about pleasing the Lord? Surely it's the latter. And thinking of David's wife, how grateful we should be for a happy, spiritually united home life. Those sad moments at the close of David's happy day are recorded for a purpose. They're recorded there for a warning. Oh, my friends, tonight, may this look at the scriptures be used of God. May the Holy Spirit apply it to your life and to mine. And your response is to take heed, to take that word of encouragement, to take that word of challenge, to take that word of rebuke and recognize that it's coming from the Lord. Let's pray together.